those were my contrarian roots right right there. And uh, I, I hope to play the cranky old guy on, on, on this podcast today. <laughs> well, I think that you're welcome to that role. <laughs> you know, Jen, Jennifer and I have argued for, for a long time, so we can, we can argue a little bit more now. There's, there's tremendous resistance to family-centered care of any kind because somehow it's seen as antithetical to, to patient-centered care or person-centered care. Uh, Suzanne, this is Barry again. Uh, you, you know, and what I've seen is, is policymakers often get out, out too far ahead of clinicians, and clinicians and policymakers don't often ha- have those conversations together. Well, we're having one now. And uh, it, it, it's really tough. It's, it's really tough. And, yeah, I, and I just want to say, I'm not usually, I'm not really a curmudgeon. I'm actually, <laughs> <laughs> but then I figured, let me play the part. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast. I'm Grace Pratt, editor of the podcast, and I am joined by an amazing team of people this morning, and including a few bonus special guests, because we have a really great discussion planned about a policy brief about integrated family care. And I'm sure that you can tell from the title that it was right up our alley, and we are all super excited. We have the author here to speak with us, one of the authors, Suzanne Brendage, as well as a couple of members of our Families and Health Special Interest Group. Let's start with our team, and then we'll introduce our guests. As is our custom, I have a little icebreaker question for us so that we're not just talking about the weather. So as you're introducing ourselves, I'd ask everyone to tell us what was something fun that you did with your family when you were growing up as a child. So we're going to kind of go around the circle here. I know that you can't see us, but just to my right on these squares is Neftali. So Neftali, give us a little bit of your background. Hey, everybody. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited. I mean, I'm, I'm having to hold myself back in this conversation from jumping right into the uh, paper and some of the ideas I thought about it. And so um, forgive me for my uh, enthusiasm. So I'm the CEO of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Family is in our name. Family is what we're going to be discussing today. And your icebreaker question has to do with family, which is obviously very appropriate. So I was thinking about what fun things we did together as a family. And I think the things that I think about are more the mundane things. I know this is going to sound totally weird, but like the thing I thought about was Arby's. Uh, So we'd go to church on Sunday nights and I would always hope that my dad would say, oh, let's go to Arby's tonight. Because for some reason as a kid, those roast beef sandwiches tasted so good. I don't understand it now as an adult, but they did back then. <laughs> Bridget just put in the chat that they still are. So <laughs> why does that not surprise me, Robbie, Bridget? So yeah, I just thought about going to like fast food restaurants with my parents. Um, and maybe some of that's too, is because my stomach doesn't tolerate fast food as well as it used to. But so that's what I thought of, just going to fast food with my, my fam. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, Next, we have Deepu George. Hey, good morning. This is Deepu George. I am an assistant professor in behavioral science faculty for family medicine residency in the Rio Grande Valley. And Naftali, with all of that plug for Arby's, I think we should be reaching out for some some royalties here, you know, (laughs) for giving them a plug at our show. We can say they got the meats. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about the different things that my family uh, used to do. 
And this is not something that we did very often, but we did it almost every three years of our li- of our life together. My dad uh, worked as a priest, and so he would get transferred every three years. So one of the constant things about growing up was moving. So we moved every three years, and we, as a family, were just so used to it. And it was a fun time, actually. I mean, it was sad leaving a place, leaving all the relationships that we built behind and the community that we grew to love. But then we also had some kind of uh, ritual and getting used to a new place and how the family came together. And looking back, that's one of my favorite memories uh, of being with my family. Really helped us sort of know who we are and what we do for the community. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Next, we have Amber Gordon. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see everyone's faces. I wish you guys who were listening could, you know, be seeing our faces. Um, I'm just really glad to see other people's faces other than uh, my partner who I'm quarantining with. <laughs> but um, I really loved your your question, Grace, because it, it helped me think about um, a lot of different things. And I think the one thing that I really have come to appreciate that happened a lot when I was growing up is my uh, my dad's cooking. He was a very creative cook. Um, and when I say creative, we did not grow up um, having a lot of options as far as, you know, we had to wait like every two weeks to go grocery shopping. So at the end of the two weeks, the meals that my dad would make would be very um, interesting for lack of a better term. But that has actually been serving me really well in uh, COVID times because we are also trying to wait as long as possible to go to the grocery store. And I can, you know, look in the fridge and where my partner sees nothing, I see like a whole three meals that I can make. Um, So it really just reminded me of some of the fun and interesting things that my dad made growing up. I think the only time I remember him failing miserably was when he tried to use up a jar of salsa by putting it in the middle of Salisbury steaks. I don't know if any of you know what they are, but they're like basically like glorified meatballs. Um, So he tried to put the salsa in the middle of the meat and it just, it didn't turn out very well. Um, So there's that question. But um, yep, so I'm Amber Gordon. I'm coming to you guys from uh, just outside Philadelphia. I see Barry Jacobs is with us today. So that shout out to Philadelphia. Um, And, you know, right now I'm, you know, just really trying to do everything that I can to serve my community remotely. Um, I am considered immune compromised, so I'm not working in the um, the ER right now, but I'm doing everything I can for my clients uh, remotely, um, trying to support people. And um, I'm really excited to be a part of this discussion today. Awesome. Thank you, Amber. Uh, and I'll mark the salsa meatballs off of my <laughs> COVID meal plan. Yeah, just <laughs> don't, don't go there. As much as it might sound like a good idea, I can assure you it is not. <laughs> Okay, now we no, have Christine. No, it, it does not sound oh. like a good idea. There's nothing about that. That sounds good. Uh, now we have Christine Borst. Hello, everybody. I'm Christine Borst. I'm a clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University, only in Colorado, and hopefully forever in Colorado. We are a bird game family. I came from a huge game family. So whenever we were together um, on the weekends with friends over, whatever, we'd all sit down at the kitchen table and play board games. And I think what was really fun about it is that now that everybody's in quarantine, even though we all live in different states, we're able to all get together last week over one of the apps that you can play board games together. So it was so fun to have my parents, all of my siblings, all of our spouses all together, you know, playing games and drinking and laughing just like we were sitting around the table. So I think that's a really beautiful 
thing that's come out of this time because right we're not together anyways but we've never done it before so it was super cool awesome bringing that long distance relationship a little bit closer uh bridget beachy i'm bridget beachy i'm a licensed clinical psychologist by trade i work as a behavioral health consultant in a federally qualified health center in Yakima, Washington, which is uh, central Washington. And as far as what I did or what we did as a family growing up, it was basically everything surrounding sports, um, sports, sports, sports. We'd watch sports. Um, Saturdays was my brother's wrestling tournaments. Sundays was his football. And then uh, my traveling softball, traveling soccer, traveling basketball. So uh, my brother always tells stories about, I had to go to all your soccer games and and you're uh they were so boring and blah, blah blah i was like do you not remember how many wrestling meets that i went to uh like that were just you know they start at like seven in the morning and end at god knows when so uh that was a mainstay for us and our family was just um watching playing sports and then of course you know all those uh, uh games in the driveway and i remember being my brother's a year older than me and I remember in seventh grade is when I started being able to beat the whole family in a horse uh, for basketball. So that's kind of when, uh, for me, basketball emerged. And I was able to take down my dad, my older brother, uh, in the games of, uh, of horse. So some very special memories for me. Awesome. Uh, I don't know that I introduced myself at the beginning. I'm Grace Pratt. I'm a family medicine residency faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, a licensed marriage and family therapist. And we were also a game family. So we played a lot of card and domino games. We played with the 12, uh, the 12 dominoes with the different colors on them. We played chicken tracks was the name of the game. Uh, and then it's, you know, those games like that, that don't come with printed rules. Everybody kind of has their own rules. So even in my own family, we had the regular rules and the Oklahoma rules from some of our family that were from Oklahoma, which I grew up mostly in Texas. Uh, so that was always a big fun time, uh, especially when we got together with our extended family. Lots and lots and lots of games of dominoes and rummy, and we still enjoy playing those now. Uh, I want to introduce our guests. So uh, we have uh, Jennifer Hodson. Hey, so I'm Jennifer Hodson. I am a licensed marriage family therapist. I live in Greenville, North Carolina, and I direct the medical family therapy doctoral program here at East Carolina University. I, I'm a consultant for FQHC, and I think for me, the, the thing I enjoy most is my research around family-centered care and how to engage families in healthcare. So I'm super excited to be here today with Suzanne, and she and I had a chance to talk after that policy brief. I discovered, I felt like I had discovered a hidden treasure, um, so I'm super excited about that. And fun memories as a family growing up. I, I think many of you may not know this about me, but I used to, as adrenaline junkie, loved thrill rides and amusement parks. So the bigger, the faster, the scarier, I was on it. And then I hit 30, and that sort of stopped. Um, so, you know, but some of the things I would love to do as a child at amusement parks is just ride the rides. And there was this horrible food item that I'm even embarrassed to admit I loved, which was fried cheese. So it was like a huge mozzarella stick on a stick. And, um, but these are the things every summer I would look forward to. So I think my parents, you know, we didn't have a lot of means, but every summer they would, man, they would get us to these amusement park, at least one, and we could just cut loose for the day. And so those were some special memories. That's awesome. Uh, then we have Barry Jacobs. 
Uh, good morning. I am a clinical psychologist, a longtime family medicine educator for 24 long years. And nowadays, I, I work as a healthcare consultant for Health Management Associates uh, out of our Philadelphia office. Uh, but like Neftali, I grew up in Queens, New York. I actually grew up uh, about two miles from Shea Stadium, where the New York Mets used to play. And uh, my family used to go to about 10 to 15 Mets games a year. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, but we were uh, Yankee fans. So whoever the Mets were playing, uh, we rooted for and always rooted against the Mets. Uh, we would become the uh, kind of eyesore of the stadium. People would be staring at us. And that was, that was th those were my con contrarian roots right, right there. And uh, uh, I, I hope to play the cranky old guy on, on, on this podcast today. <laughs> well, I think that you're welcome to that role. <laughs> uh, and then finally, we have Suzanne Brendage. Hi, good morning, everyone. I'm Suzanne Brundage, uh, live in Brooklyn, New York right now. Um, I'm the director of the Children's Health Initiative at the United Hospital Fund. And um, growing up, my favorite memories were skiing with my dad. Um, my dad uh, was a pretty gruff guy, spent a long time in Alaska. So these were usually more adventurous, like get up, crack a dawn, drive hours to get to the slopes. Didn't matter if it was negative 20 whiteout conditions, you were gonna spend you know, all day on the mountain. So for those um, familiar with the, the taxonomy, it's more you know, maybe tolerable stress levels for a kid, um, but look back at those days fondly. And um, anytime I can be out in nature, despite living in New York City these days, um, I cherish that. Awesome. Thank you all for sharing those things. You know, we're in a time of a lot of family togetherness for some of us as we're quarantined and working from home and learning from home and, um, you know, trapped in the same four walls with a lot of the same people. Uh, but I just am reflecting on that for all of us, the thing that we loved growing up was just spending that time with our family. So not all, not all the time is wonderful right now, but I think that when we get a little bit removed and we get a little bit distance, there's going to be some glimmers of the things that we appreciate. Uh, okay, so we have a little bit of news and notes, and then we'll get into our main discussion. Um, Neftali, did you have some things to share? Yeah, we'll make this quick because we really want to get to our main discussion today. Um, I just want to remind our audience about a couple of COVID-related resources. Uh, what we've tried to do for our members is collate resources as much as possible because we're all dealing with information overload. So two places to look to very easily uh, track key information related to uh, healthcare and uh, the COVID response. Our Twitter feed, we've got stories from member clinics that we're putting up there. Um, and what they're doing during the pandemic. Some great work uh, folks are doing all over the country in unique ways they're uh, responding. And then uh, our TA site, um, which is called integratedcareconsultation.com, um, has a resource page and there's a tag that you can just select and filter, which is COVID-19. And that collates all the links, all the uh, resources that our members have shared with each other from uh, stuff that they're doing for team wellness to uh, patient resources to uh, COVID-specific management resources. So check those two links, uh, those two resources, our, our Twitter feed and then the integratedcareconsultation.com site for the resources. 
Uh, and then the last bit of news, people have been asking um, about our conference. If you know about CFHA, you know that our conference is the thing that people look forward to every year. Um, good news is we can still look forward to a conference. Um, we don't know what format that's going to take. Um, it could be an in-person conference. So this year it's slated to be in Barry's home of Philadelphia. And we are uh, very hopeful that we'll be able to have a conference. Now, it could be a modified conference. It could be a socially distanced conference. It could be a conference that some people are not able to go to. So for that reason, uh, we're also concurrently planning uh, a virtual format for the conference. So regardless, you can look forward to the CFHA conference this year, whether it's in person or virtual or, and I'm kind of excited about this actually, both. So more news to come. Keep track of news there on integratedcareconference.com. That's all I have. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I just have one more thing to add. We Hopefully, if you're subscribed to our podcast, you've already see this, seen this resource come through your podcast feed. Uh, but we are working on a series of bonus episodes that are just a little bit of mindful support and a peaceful pause during this uh, coronavirus pandemic. We know that many of our listeners are the workers on the front lines, treating uh, families and patients, working in healthcare, taking care of each other. And so we have created, we're putting it on on Mondays and Thursdays right now. Um, they're very brief, some just two minutes, some up to five minutes, a uh, series of meditations, similar to the closing thoughts that we always enjoy at the end of our podcast episodes. You can find those on our podcast feed, wherever you usually get it, or you can find it on integratedcarenews.com on our podcast page. And we hope that you find those helpful and also hope that you'll share them with whoever else you think might benefit. I know that in addition to the residents and physicians that I work with, I've also shared them with some neighbors and friends who have all said that they appreciate them. So we would love to make that available to you. Uh, so now we're just going to take a quick break for an ad, and then we'll be back for our main discussion. So you know that CFHA is the only member association for integrated care professionals. And you know that CFHA has an awesome annual conference and is a leader for online content in integrated care. What you may not know is that CFHA is also a leading provider of consultation services for clinics and systems building integrated care programs. From large projects to small ones, our consulting team uses the best evidence available and the most up-to-date practices in implementation strategies to ensure that your project is successful. Whether you need on-site coaching, executive-level strategy conversations, supervision sessions with your staff, or even speakers for your regional conference, CFHA's consultation services are there to help and at a price that is very competitive. Plus, by using CFHA's consulting services, you also promote the mission of our not-for-profit association. It's a win-win. For more, contact us through our website at integratedcareconsultation.com. That's integratedcareconsultation.com, the place to go for the best in technical assistance. Okay, the moment we're waiting for. I know all of us are very excited to have this conversation about this policy brief on integrated family care. Uh, so we have Suzanne with us, and I was hoping that you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about the background of this piece and kind of how you came to write it and, and what's some of the perspective that you share there. 
Thanks, Grace. So uh, the paper, it's called Plan and Provider Opportunities to Move Toward Integrated Family Care. Um, and basically, you know, the premise is that um, there's been so much work, um, including by you all, around integration over the years. And we really need to have particularly policymakers and um, health insurers, health plans, embrace the concept of integrated family care as a vision for where we're moving as a healthcare system. You know, I'm the director of children's health at United Hospital Fund, so I think about this a lot from a pediatric or family medicine you know, perspective, but really that the entirety of the healthcare system should be thinking about integrated family care. So when we talk about that, we basically think of it as a constant effort towards integration along you know, three axes, you could think about it. So bringing uh, behavioral health, mental health care together with physical integration of some interventions or at least identification of social needs, and then multi-generational, a two-generational perspective in the work. And I you know, our premise in the paper is basically if we're going to be serious about improving population health, particularly improving outcomes for families over multiple generations of a time when so much is stacked up against a lot of these families, it's going to take integration across all three of those axes to get there. And so the paper um, lays out a very you know, in a way, both ambitious and humble, I would say, framework for thinking about how to move, how to build on patient-centered medical home, other strengths of primary care that exist today, and really push towards that greater level of integration. And, you know, finally, I'll just say about the paper, again, I, I'm not a clinician. Um, I'm in awe of clinicians and providers that are moving this work on the ground. Really, my perspective is how can health plans participate? How can particularly state Medicaid agencies or offices of mental health engage in this work, right? So it's, it can't just be the delivery system alone. It has to be um, payment strategies, um, broad scale, you know, state pilots supporting that delivery system change. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I... I love how you described it as both ambitious and humble because I think you guys really hit that nail on the head. I mean, you you made recommendations and made some strong recommendations, but also left a lot of opening for interpretation and um, what the expression of that model could look like. And so I want to just start by opening it up to our team because I know we have uh, just a lot of collective years of experience here of working in this field. And I thought that you guys might have had some reactions or some questions or things that you might like to add about the paper. Well, I'll jump in here real quick. Um, just dovetailing on that whole idea, that whole notion you brought up, Suzanne, about how it's important not just to look at this from a delivery system standpoint, um, which I think is where a lot of the energy has been, uh, but rather looking at it from the fundamental structures that undergird that, right? Policy, payment, uh, workforce development, right? And uh, just as a, an example of that, and an example of the sort of the ambitious uh, aspect of your writing. And by the way, I love, I love that, but you, you guys did put yourselves out there <laughs> with this. I mean, you did. And I, that takes courage to do that. 
And here's one exa example of that. And I want you to talk about this a little bit. So the family as a unit of payment, that's something as a provider I've always thought about um, because it doesn't make sense for me, especially with kids, but in other family configurations as well, to be billing for an individual child. And so in the paper, you outline that uh, payment systems, uh, payments uh, payers should be experimenting with the family as a unit of payment. So if you could give us a, a little bit of a sense of what you think that might look like and uh, what some experiments might look like around that. Happy to do so. Um, and this is really, you know, this is the, the same concept that I think animates me every day. Um, how do we get to that point of a family as a unit of care? Um, so you're all clinicians and you probably come up with some better examples, you know, than, than I can. But the type of example I always think about is you know, you've got a, um, a complex, uh, a family with a, with a range of complex, you know, behavioral health issues. And coming into the pediatric office is a kid who you can pretty much identify early on is certainly at higher risk of, for example, having ADHD. And a lot of the best, as, as far as I understand it, a lot of evidence-based best practices that are non-pharmaceutical working with, with that kid to really prevent uh, the worsening of a condition are family-based interventions. It really requires the work. The patient is the kid. The work is with the parent, right? But the way that our systems are set up is... Um, that even though the provider who's been trained in this, you know, pediatricians understand that, family med understands that, the provider may see that opportunity for an, an intervention, but from a plan perspective, you know, why would a plan wanna pay or reimburse for a family-based intervention when, first of all, with the kid, there's a long-term payoff, you know, prevention's hard to pay for in the beginning, and they don't really see the parent as part of, of who they're focusing on. So, you know, what the, the, the way that we talk about this is sometimes if you could add up through a family-based intervention, the worsening of a condition for a parent and a child, you could make a better kind of cost efficiency return on investment argument to a plan, right? That together, if you could add up that whole family, right? And the total cost of care going around that family, particularly with families where there are, you know, again, complex behavioral health conditions, you can both lower cost potentially, potentially, or more importantly, improve outcomes. And you could probably, if there's young kids in that family, do some great prevention work. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the overall picture, and I'll say there are lots of complexities in doing that. Uh, the one that we really focus on in the paper is with Medicaid managed care plans, at least here in New York. They they don't get a view of the whole family, so it's very uh, you can't even connect a parent and a kid, and so all of those opportunities for family-based interventions really aren't visible from a payer perspective. Yeah, and and the other example you give in the paper that I think was really pertinent is maternal child's health, where you have an infant uh, who has insurance. And oftentimes in states that I've worked in, the mom's insurance uh, runs out shortly after giving birth. And so you have an insured child with an uninsured parent. 
um, and the recommendation you guys give, which I think is a great, really practical step that, that I would hope we could see in the near future, just to say, look, extend that mother's insurance out at least a couple of years into the child's life, because you have to see this as a family unit and your outcomes for the child and parent are linked. So treat them as such. So I thought, you know, such a, you know, seemingly simple idea, but, but, you know, it's great that you gave voice to it. Yeah, I think that's one, actually, when I look out at the landscape of particularly Medicaid policy right now, I think that's one of the most promising opportunities. And there are a lot of great national policy organizations, also state-based organizations that are really focused on that. You know, what people have called kind of the fourth trimester um, for pregnancy, you know, postpartum coverage expansion. And, and what I like, you know, about your point as well is it, it brings home the fact that delivery system innovation has to sit on a foundation of very strong coverage. So the very beginning in any state or federally is you have to make sure all members of the family are insured, right? And then from that, that strong foundation coverage, we can talk about, okay, what, what can you do within practice um, and how does payment and policy support that delivery system innovation? Yeah, and I'm not gonna dominate the conversation here, but I'm just sure that the other piece that you drew that I wanna highlight is the idea of linking those patients on the payer side. Um, because if the payer is linking the family unit and doing something to treat the family unit that way, you know that providers are going to start doing that within their systems, within our EHRs. Because right now our EHRs don't link family members really at all. And so that really does create this, unless we happen to treat multiple members of the family um, and know them, we don't have a sense of what those connections are. So some really practical ways in which there's a linkage between policy, uh, payments, and uh, service delivery. Suzanne, this is Barry. I mean, you, you've written something remarkably ambitious. I mean, really, I, the idea of integrated family care, family unit of care has, has been around, but honestly, it's, it's been in abeyance for a long time uh, because it's, it's run into such headwinds over the years. Uh, but, you know, you, you're pointing out where there may be spots within healthcare where this is most appropriate. So mother and child, very appropriate. Uh, patient with dementia and caregiver, that dyad, another very appropriate uh, focus for a, a payer or, or, or policymaker to, to develop this idea of, of, of family unit of care. But now, but now let me, uh, let me wax uh, as, a, as a contrarian. Um, the cultural barriers within healthcare are such that this is a, this is such a reach. I mean, this, this tremendous resistance to family-centered care of any kind because somehow it's seen as antithetical to, to patient-centered care or person-centered care, that the two are not seen as one and one the same. They're, they're seen as if, if I'm focusing on the, on the family, then I'm marginalizing the patient and my primary responsibilities to the patient. So I, I do a lot of grand rounds and, and you know, mostly speaking to uh, internal medicine folks. And I mean, this comes up all the time. And in my years, even in family medicine, it came up all the time that family is still seen as perhaps a, a partner in care to a degree, but certainly not the focus of care. Yeah, Barry, I think you're you're right that yeah, this is a, a this paper is really um, 
building on and repackaging uh, concepts that, as you said, have been around for a long time and have not um, not met, you know, have, have faced these headwinds. There, you know, there are things that give me some hope, although, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an eternal optimist, you know, person. One is, um, I think this is a newly energized conversation when, when talking about population health strategies where health systems, um, particularly those that have been able to align you know, their payment incentives uh, with population health strategies have, obviously they've certainly started to pay much more attention to the social context and community context of care. And, and I, I feel that even in the, the time I've been paying attention to this space, we've come a long way still, you know, far, far, far from this, this being commonplace, but we've seen this big, you know, evolution. So, so the, the family context in that you know, way has, has moved along. Um, I have a lot of hope in, um, in what we've seen coming out of some kind of residency programs and, and future, you know, um, medical Providers, and we'll talk a little bit about workforce, but I've, I've seen some new energy and acceptance around the family context. Uh, but I think, you know, ultimately, this goes back again to why I think there has to be a concerted effort from the delivery system side, the plan side, and policy context. Because to some degree, I, if I was a provider and I was overstretched, overburdened, and people were saying, you just need to do more, do more, do more, pay attention to more things, care about more people without the appropriate supports, without the model to do that, you know, without the system in place, I'd be resistant too. And so, you know, for me, it's been about, okay, how do you create the system around care providers that enables that? I am so excited about this concept coming out on this podcast right now because we are in the midst of COVID-19 and there has been so much exposure to families being excluded from healthcare, healthcare providers being upset about families being excluded. Um, I think we have this amazing opportunity to really champion for the family and healthcare. And so I'm wondering if there's any way you see being able to push policy forward more now, given that there's this increased awareness of the role that family plays in health and in the engagement of family with our healthcare system in ways that we see them as assets versus liabilities. Because I think historically, research, policy, payment models have all seen family as liabilities, risk factors, things that you control, like variables versus engage. And so I think we have this really great opportunity out of this chaos to sort of push forward some policy. What would be your dream place to start? So I, so I agree that I think, um, you know, we're clearly in this transition moment right now. And, and um, I see some opportunities possibly coming out of a better healthcare system out of this crisis. I also have some real concerns and worries about how um, we may not have the appetite after this crisis to do this innovative work, but putting, you know, putting that aside right now, I've been really impressed just in the last few weeks, the extent to which behavioral and social needs have risen to be just 
in a way as important in the the public conversation about an infectious disease outbreak. I don't think that was a given, you know, coming into this. Um, so how do we build on that momentum? I mean, first, I think reminding particularly policymakers that families are the immediate support system for one another. I mean, there's it's sort of inescapable as we're all sitting in our homes with various family members. Um, that's an inescapable reality and in talking to um, talking to policymakers, reminding them of that of that context. But I think really the direction is is talking about disparities um, and really saying, you know, we've been trying so many things um, over, you know, many years to improve outcomes for very disadvantaged populations. A lot of those solutions are going to sit outside of the healthcare system. I think we need to acknowledge that. Right, that to really overcome health disparities, most of the solutions are probably outside the healthcare system. But what is the healthcare system bringing to the table as an opportunity to overcome those disparities? And I think integration is really the what healthcare has to offer. That you can build that extended team um, and and really focus again on that relational context, the, the social needs context. Um, not saying, you know, we have all the solutions, uh, but push, push for it from that perspective. So that's a big, that's a big picture response. Um, you know, I mean, practicalities, I think coverage is really where we need to begin. Um, I think, uh, identifying now how a lot of providers have had to take that family perspective. Just in the news here in New York yesterday, I was reading a PM Pediatrics, an urgent care provider here in the city, expanded their drive-through testing to all family members. So they are a pediatric urgent care center, but they're testing all family members for COVID-19. Yeah, well, that makes sense, right? Um, so if if we can accept it in that context it's a little bit like the maternal depression argument if you can accept it for that particular condition let's talk about what makes that different or similar to then how we would think about mental health in a family which you could also say you know is not limited to an individual their impacts again you know across uh, family members. So I, I think finding, pushing the coverage argument and then finding what's happening in this immediate context that that elevates the family perspective are the two things you want to bring to policymakers. And I really appreciate that. I think one of the things in North Carolina is they've turned on these codes for telehealth, which is amazing. However, they've turned it on for individual care. They haven't turned on the family codes. So I think that we're still needing, you know, our policy to get out that it's not, it shouldn't be the exception, but the rule, you know, and I'd love to be able to see us push forward even some policy through this opportunity of advocating for these codes, these family-based care codes to really be as integral um, as our individual codes that we're able to access now. And then the other thing you said with the EHR, I think we have a prime opportunity 
to build some algorithms in the system where we do use family unit data to be able to identify changes in behavior, changes in visits, changes in, um, we can do really great things by sending out screening tools to families and then being able to better detect and diagnose disease early on based on observations and things that we see in each other. I mean, I just feel like we have such a really great opportunity and your policy brief, I think, really ignites this excitement that so many of us here at CFHA feel. So thank you. If I could jump in real quick, and Christine, I'll go right back to you here, but I just want to highlight that telehealth point because that is one of the really interesting pieces of this um, in that, especially for clinics that are doing telehealth to, to home, which is most of us now, um, uh, you can do telehealth clinic to clinic is what I'm saying, but we're doing telehealth to home. And so it becomes much more uh, uh, sort of obvious to do what our, our teammate here, Bridget Beachy, is always preaching to us about, uh, which is context, right? Context is king. And when you beam into somebody's home, you get all sorts of context um, from the social uh, pieces that that are much more sort of in your face and apparent to the family dynamics and um, the spaces in which people live, the key relationships they have, et cetera. So uh, I, I think that the telehealth piece is an important piece to that. I'll also say, Jennifer, that I wonder if um, our thing is is not so much to focus on codes, but actually I think what you brought up, Suzanne, really inspired in my mind a thought around um, conditions or diagnoses and identifying those conditions that are the spiders that um, are not just about individuals with issues. So ADHD is a really good example because really treating ADHD is not about, not really about sitting down with a child. Um, it, it's really, it has to be family-based in its approach. So that that diagnosis essentially should automatically inspire a spider approach in our payments and uh, documentation systems so that we understand treating this condition, much like in Barry's example of dementia, this is a spider diagnosis. This one connects a bunch of individuals and therefore must include consideration of that from both a delivery and a, a payment standpoint. This just a thought. Yeah. And, and if Tali, I'll just say, you know, one way that, that, so we would think about that is, okay, if you want to promote that innovation, can you find a few willing community health centers, practices, um, and one or two willing health plans who one can, are, are willing to work through some of the challenges of, of connecting parent and child in their claims data. And there are workable workarounds for that. And also commercial plans, many commercial plans can already do that. And then identify a subset of those conditions. So say we're gonna work on you know, ADHD and let's, let's toss in two or three more conditions. And we're going collectively between the plan and these practices say, okay, over, um, a multi-year period, over two years, over five years, can we pay for some family-based interventions? What would that cost to the plan to pay for those family-based interventions? And then what happens both to outcomes and to total family expenses, you know, over a five-year period? Have you been able to actually do something that's better for outcomes and is possibly more cost-efficient from the plan perspective? That is a complicated pilot to put together, but it's not, um, 
it's not insurmountable. And there are certainly, we've heard from pe people across the, the country that are trying to do that collaboration. So again, while it's thinking big, it's also thinking very locally. And can you get one or two plans excited about the idea and willing to, to set this up and test it and work through some of those feasibility issues, but also see what happens to outcomes around certain key conditions. There's a bit of a back conversation happening in our chat as we're trying to organize our thoughts. And I, I want to let our listeners in on it. You know, we're talking about the idea of these codes and it, it, it almost becomes a bit of a, you know, chicken or egg situation. Can we get the codes to demonstrate the legitimacy of the best practice that this is needs something that needs to happen, but how do we get the codes without the data um, and the issue of, you know, what systemic versus another. And so I, I just want to ask you guys to bring those thoughts out uh, audibly a little bit more for our listeners as we're having this conversation. Um, so this is Barry again, and I, you know, Jen, Jennifer and I have argued for, for a long time, so we can, we can argue a little bit more now. So I, I in my work, job as a consultant, I, I, I spent a lot of time with payers and, and as well as states. Um, so I, I'm, I'm actually doing much less work with, the, with, with healthcare providers I mean, the, the, the payers, particularly the Medicaid payers, they'll, they'll launch innovations, um, but they won't. But there, there has to be, a, you know, a partnership. There has to be some support for, for a, a pilot of some sort. And then they'll study the outcomes of the pilot. The states are not just going to create a code or the federal government is not going to create a code uh, to reimburse anything until there have been enough pilots and enough data amassed that you can justify it. Because otherwise, you know, there's always a concern that you, you, you know, codes is opening up uh, new sources of revenue for somebody who's going to take advantage of this somehow. And, and consequently, we have, to, we have to proceed very, very carefully with codes. But you, you, need a, you would need a very innovative um, payer, and there are some out there that around a specific project with, with a specific diagnosis would be willing to launch something in one region, one market, and, and, and with, the, with the right partners and see how it goes. Um, and, you know, Suzanne, you, you're in New York. I mean, New York State is far more innovative than most other states in this country. And if, 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 if you can get this done in New York, that would be very important to, to, to show more conservative states why this, this might be a, a reasonable uh, step. And, and, uh, and then they're, they're, it'll produce the outcomes of financial outcomes that the payers want. Yeah, Barry, I'll just, this is one of those areas where um, I think state competition can be really good. And I actually encourage um, Medicaid agencies to kind of outdo each other in terms of, of how innovative, how creative, how supportive of these concepts they can be. You see that a little bit between, um, I mean, concepts of, of kindergarten readiness, which has emerged in Medicaid programs over the last few years. You know, what is the role of healthcare in contributing to kind of kindergarten readiness? And you've got Oregon uh, pursuing it, you've got New York pursuing it. And I just think, you know, there is a way to kind of say to a few states, like you have to be the leader. You've got to, you've got to push on this. And look, people that are in state government, in Medicaid agencies, they're there because they typically want to achieve something and, and, and want to support these families the same. And so really, um, this is me in my cheerleading role, but I think we ha we ha you're absolutely right that you have to engage the plans and you really, really have to engage the Medicaid agencies. So 
we're having two conversations. So, well, but it all has to go together. There has to be the clinical innovation. There has to be the payer innovation. And I think that's one of the things that um, that I've seen in this, in being in this work and in this field, in the bit of time that I've been, is that people get very innovative. Um, in the absence of, you know, a clear-cut, easy path to payment, we somehow still find a way to flourish and we somehow still find a way to treat these cases and these families. And then as you guys are talking about, when these opportunity pops up and we take advantage and we prove what could work, then change happens over time. And so we have to take advantage of those spots. Like you've mentioned the depression screening, expanding the coverage, um, you know, for mothers. I'm wondering just as we're, dreaming big and we have listeners from all kinds of settings and all kinds of opportunities and positionings. What are some ways that we've seen this care work? If we were in our wildest imagination, what would we like integrated family care to look like? So I've spent a lot of time in pediatrics, both as a clinician and then also doing technical assistance. And now I teach a pediatric integrated care class. And so literally last night, we're discussing half of the things because I'm troubleshooting with my students and we're talking about it. And then the, the conversation can only get so far, right? Because we're like, well, but then we have the workaround because of the payment. I was lucky enough to be um, grant funded. So at a, at a pediatric turn community health center. So we were able to work with the family unit a lot more easily. And that kind of set the gold standard for me. Doing technical assistance, you know, a lot of times you have to sell integrated care to the sites that you're, who want to do it to everybody who's working there. And that was never my experience in pediatrics. I walk into pediatrics and I say, hey, this is what we do. And they're like, yes, please. Because I think it's very intuitive for anyone who works with children. You're not having a five-year-old coming into a clinic by themselves, filling out the paperwork, chatting up at the doc, and then leaving. And so I also think as a clinician, the vast majority of the things that came to my attention were parenting issues would say, how do I do this? What do I do for this? How does this work? And that's regardless of diagnosis for the kid. And so I think that that would be my hope, that we're focusing not only on ADHD and everything else that's getting diagnosed in childhood, but this prevention. This is such a beautiful opportunity for prevention. And that's why this just thrilled me reading this this morning. And I'm going to have my students read it tonight um, because I, there's so many places this could go. I mean, looking at ACEs, looking at, you know, we're reading the whole brain child. And so looking at, um, you know, the neuroscience behind kids. And I think this could have an impressive effect if we can get everybody on board. And I think you're right, Christine, about how we have for many years operated in workarounds. Um, I can tell you how many situations it could be like working with a, a couple a uh, Latino couple with diabetes. Uh, the, the one, the gentleman has diabetes. His wife is there, um, and I'm not. I'm not coding a family visit, but in truth, what I'm doing is doing work between the two of them to figure out contextually what's the best way to support this individual with diabetes. Um, and and more times than not, that includes systemic changes. Uh, communication between the two of them, uh, clarifying some of the cultural understandings they might have, uh, operationalizing changes in their diet between the two of them, um, 
uh, talking about food and how it's love, it represents a way of love and communication of love in the family context. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not getting paid for that uh, necessarily. In some cases, I'm not getting paid at all for that. Um, but uh, I think there are ways in which we have come up with these ways of, of thinking about uh, treatment that incorporate this contextual systemic approach. What we have not had is the uh, positive reinforcement from the payment and policy standpoint. And I would also say the other thing we haven't talked too much about, but also workforce development, you know, how, how we train uh, our residents and physicians and PAs and behavioral health staff to be thinking along these ways naturally to, to, to think contextually in every single visit. You can tell that I'm leading into Bridget Beachy because she has to say contextual once a podcast. It's just written into the rules of the podcast. So Bridget, can you just say contextual for us and remind us how important that is? Contextual interview. Uh, I can tell you, I, I won't go off on too much of a tangent, you know, working at a, uh, in addition to us being a federally qualified health center, we also have a residency. And I can tell you every single graduate of our program for the last six years, probably before that, but uh, that's when I got there, uh, is going to be able to leave telling you the contextual interview, which the first three items are your living situation, your relationship status, and your relationship with the family. Uh, I can tell you everybody will leave with the 10 aces and the impact that of what had happens at home. And I can tell you that everybody's going to be able to leave being able to know what a SMART goal is and how to incorporate that with the members of that person's context. So um, that is just something that we are committed to here in Central Washington. And uh, I did a didactic yesterday and was quizzing the, the residents just to kind of demonstrate to them how much they know. Because when I got this one hour didactic on depression, I'm thinking, what can I possibly teach them that we haven't already taught them? And I'm like, they already know so much. So we started quizzing. I was just absolutely floored by their, their knowledge. And that's the folks that are going out and are going to be um, physicians in our in our country. So it's just pretty inspiring work. Well, and I think too that without the structure and the foundation in place, it's hard to train the workforce, the next generation, when I'm not like winking and being like, okay, this is what we should be doing, except you're going to have to find a little wiggle room. So good luck with that. And so I think they're very much at odds right now. I think we have... In my opinion, we all have to do what we can to contribute. I mean, it's no secret that this, this health system and this problem is a big problem and a lot of really interesting, you know, a lot of brilliant minds are thinking on it and working on it and we're all approaching it from different angles. So we need the Suzanne who is not a clinician, who is making an argument to the payers, to the policymakers. We need the clinicians who are innovating and finding ways to do this work. Um, we need all of the different pieces. Sometimes I, I say that my secret mission uh, working in family medicine education is to train the physicians who are going to go out and demand and advocate for integrated care and also train the BHC students who are ready to fill those roles. Um, and so the workforce development is a really big piece of it and a really big part of what we've got to be doing. I would just um, jump in and say, you know, I loved when you asked this question about workforce preparation, I think you, know, you all are best suited to talk about the clinical training, what needs to happen in 
undergraduate, graduate medical education, residency programs. And, and I think the contribution from folks like myself is also to think about what does workforce development in this area look like for people working in health policy or health management that are not clinicians? I mean, I went, I did a two-year health policy and management master's degree. The, the most influential parts of my master's program were being embedded in the field with innovative providers. And you get a sense then of what are they striving for? What are the obstacles? And you then marry that with a health policy perspective. Um, I don't think we think about that as much. You know, what is, what is ongoing education and training and exposure for people working in health plans look like this is a you know this is a very insider conversation right now and so exposing uh, those who are in the payment system or in the policy context to these ideas I mean when when policy people understood patient-centered medical home not universally across the board but many organized around around that concept and said yes here is a concept we can hold on to and let's start trying to move payment and policy towards supporting that idea. Uh, Suzanne, this is Barry again. Uh, you, you know, what I've seen is, is policymakers often get out, out too far ahead of clinicians and then clinicians dismiss what they say because policymakers will make demands of clini clinicians not really fully uh, grasping the reality on the ground. Um, and yet, I absolutely agree with you, policy is essential for changing the system. You know, cl clinical delivery is about kind of creating the widgets every day, stamp stamping out another patient doing, you know, but it's not about changing the system that, that ends up shaping clinical practice. But, but the policy, as you say, has to be married to the clinical practice very, very closely. And, and clinicians and policymakers don't often ha have those conversations together. Well, we're having one now. We, we are having one now, but you know, that's because- I know, it should be, yeah. Your, your behest, Natalia, <laughs> you know, clinicians are, um, they're, they're all wrapped up in, in the here and now, you know, they're wrapped up in the person in front of them oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, having worked in residency education a, a long, long time, I mean, I, I wanted to, to equip the, my residents with, with these ideas, with, with, with these aspirations, but then later on, you know, often found out that they would be chewed up by the system to such an extent that a lot of the a lot of these very important concepts became kind of background to the foreground of just dealing with the urgency of the moment all the time. And uh, it, it, it's really tough. It's, it's really tough. And I know we're coming to the end here and I, hopefully we can give Suzanne the last word. But I, I want to uh, emphasize, you know, Barry's point, not just what he's talking about now. Um, but also what you mentioned earlier, Barry, about some of the resistance that, that exists. And yeah, some of it's from clinicians who feel like policy is too far ahead and the gap there. Um, but I, I think there's also, we, we should acknowledge that there's also lots of cultural resistance. You know, some of this goes deep into our roots, I think, as, as an American culture that is so hyper-individualistic. Um, and, and I think I, I hope, I, I should say, that actually one of the things that comes out of this pandemic is a renewed understanding of how intertwined we all are on every level, because we're seeing in a visceral way how economically intertwined we are, right? 
um, we're, we're seeing how viscerally affected we are from families, from the family level and the community level. And I, I think that's a reminder that um, we in healthcare need to champion as well, that there is a way in which we are interconnected that affects every level, um, including the payment level, including the policy level, and including the service delivery level. Um, so I think this is a place where we can we can come out of this hopefully with a renewed cultural understanding that helps undergird and fight some of that resistance to this notion that uh, the family unit in many cases is the best uh, uh, focal point for healthcare delivery and healthcare payment. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for that charge, Nathalia, and that reminder. Uh, as you said, we're just about out of time. So I do want to give you just the last word, Suzanne, to tell us um, any words of wisdom that you have? Well, I think Neftali really laid it out there. So I don't know how much I can add. I think it comes back to the words that you all have centered around, which is teamwork and expanding that actually, not just from the clinical team, but what is the teamwork between state policymakers, some innovative health plans, as Barry said, they're out there, and a few providers who are willing to, to have those conversations. Um, the paper lays out you know, eight or nine different steps of, again, moving towards integrated family care. We're not going to be at that end goal um, overnight or necessarily even in 20 years. I, the idea is how, as a team, do we keep taking steps towards that vision that Naftali laid out for all of us. And I, I think we can make some progress. Thank you. I, you know, I know that our listeners are going to have a lot of thoughts on this and we Le we would love to continue this conversation. We have a very active listserv for our CFHA members. And so maybe, you know, if you can send your thoughts there and I know that we'll continue the conversation through that chain of communication. Um, as we go out, we want to end the way that we always do with a reflection. Deepu. All right. Thank you all for that very, very powerful conversation. I have lots of notes, so maybe this will go in the listserv. Um, what I have for us today is a little reflection poem from Mary Oliver called Today, and we'll end with that. Today I am flying low, and I'm not saying a word. I'm letting all the voodoos of ambition sleep. The world goes on as it must. The bees in the garden rumbling a little, the fish leaping, the gnats getting eaten, and so forth, but I'm taking the day off, quiet as a feather. I hardly move, though I am really traveling at terrific distance. Stillness, one of the doors into the temple. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next month.